This special review episode of New Politics was released on the 20th of January, 2024, and produced on the lands of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to this special summer series from New Politics and we are continuing with our most popular episodes and big issues from 2023 because we think that they're still going to be relevant this year and there have been some inquiries about when the main schedule for New Politics is starting up again in 2024 and it might not seem like it but putting together a weekly podcast is a lot of work and David and I are taking most of January off and some of our opponents have suggested that we should take the entire year off that's not going to happen but for all of those people who are missing us too much you can listen to our review episodes which are still pretty good or you can buy our new book and that's rising phoenix falling shadows and that's a review of all the big issues from 2023 and you can purchase it through online bookshops or directly from us at newpolitics.com.au and it's a whopper of a book it's 446 pages and The special edition for paid subscribers on Substack and Patreon is 566 pages and that's available as a free PDF or ebook. and of course this is always a good way to support independent journalism. And so far in our summer series, we've revisited media diversity and housing affordability. And this week, we'll be looking at Palestine and a review of some of the key issues in Gaza that developed towards the end of last year. Israel caught off guard after the largest and deadliest escalation of violence in decades. Tonight, rockets and airstrikes continue to rain down on Israel and Gaza after a day of shock, death and destruction. Addressing the nation Saturday night, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu promised mighty vengeance against Hamas. It is almost exactly 50 years since Israel's longest serving Prime Minister served in the Yom Kippur War, a conflict that caught Israel off guard. Now as Prime Minister, he is dealing with what appears to be another massive intelligence failure. Events never before seen since the foundation of Israel. The war between Israel and Hamas is now entering its third month of fighting. In Gaza, Israeli specialist teams are combing through captured territory in hopes of finding hostages. A makeshift hospital room filled with suffering. Doctors fight to keep alive the victims of an Israeli airstrike in Rafah. A medic tries to comfort one young boy. The body of a small child wrapped in a shroud. In Gaza, 100 days of misery has been marked by unrelenting attacks. The total death toll now sits at just under 24,000, with nearly 2 million of the 2.3 million strong population displaced. I have a small tent. The cold has killed us. There's no food, there's nothing. I can't give my children a carton of milk. My children are sick. Every day, a collapsed healthcare system operating just six ambulances is left to deal with catastrophic injuries 
in a population now on the brink of famine. The UN estimates that about a quarter uh, of the territory's people uh, are going hungry. Tens of thousands of people are just living in tent camps in cold, rainy winter uh, weather. As rallies around the world demand an end to the horror. Australia is not a central player uh, in the Middle East, but we are a respected voice. And I'll be using our voice uh, to advocate for a pathway out of this conflict. And some of our audience have asked us, well, why have you spent so much time on Palestine since October last year? And seven of our final nine episodes of the year did include segments on the Israel-Palestine conflict in Gaza. And we just think that this is a massive issue that does affect the entire international community, but it's also of great importance to the Australian community as well. So many innocent people have died in Gaza. 25,000 people have been killed by Israel Defence Forces since October the 7th. 1,400 Israelis were killed by Hamas on that date, October the 7th. And we have to ask these questions. Why have there been 17 times more Palestinians who have died? Why have 2 million people in Gaza been displaced from a population of 2.4 million? Why has there been so much destruction of homes, shops, schools and hospitals in Gaza? And this conflict didn't commence on October the 7th. It's actually been going on since at least 1948, The modern conflict probably has its roots in the late 1800s with the Zionist work of Theodore Herzl. There's the role of Hamas since 1987. There's so many historical issues to take into account. There's the geopolitics of the Middle East. There's oil and resources. There's the international arms trade between Australia and Israel, which is all very, very secretive. And there is an international diplomatic role that Australia has to play as well. And so far, they've been found wanting, supporting US foreign policy and Israel as much as possible at the expense of Palestinian people. There's Palestinian and Jewish communities in Australia, and they're affected by these events in different ways. There's the different responses from Australian politicians. And then there's the role of the media and the out-of-control actions by the Israeli lobby groups, such as Lawyers for Israel, and their attempts to influence the media and actually working towards sacking journalists from the ABC who didn't support their right-wing views on Israel. Israel is also on a charge of genocide at the International Court of Justice in The Hague, and that was brought on by South Africa and now being supported by 10 other countries as well. So there's so many ways that Palestine is relevant to Australian politics at the moment, and this is likely to continue throughout 2024. And our first discussions commenced just after the Hamas attacks and the massacre of Israeli citizens on October the 7th, and this is what we had to say at the time. War and conflict has broken out again in Israel and Palestine, and this follows on from the attacks and massacre by Hamas militants of over 1,200 people last weekend, and that's been universally condemned in most parts of the Western world and in Australia, as it should have been. And this was followed up with shelling and bombing from the Israeli military into Gaza, where over 1,000 people have been killed, and we haven't heard too much about this in the mainstream media. But The actions of Hamas have to be condemned and the actions of the Israeli military have to be condemned as well. And we have to condemn all of their actions over the past 50 years or so. 
And it's hard to know how long the mutual retaliation is going to continue for, but we can see that these actions are usually linked to political events in Israel. The wars in 2008, 2014 and 2021 were around the time of the general elections in Israel. And the link this time is Benjamin Netanyahu's push to force a coalition government of annexation and dispossession after months and months of negotiations since their last election in November 2022. And that agreement was finally made yesterday. And the Israeli military did receive a clear warning from Egyptian intelligence about an imminent attack on October the 7th. And Israel has got the most sophisticated missile defence and drone technology systems in the world, so you just have to wonder how all of this got through. But the upshot is that many innocent people have died, and we do have to keep condemning this. But the other factor is that so many innocent people have died on one side of the conflict. And between 2008 and 2020... Over 5,500 Palestinians have been killed and over 115,000 have been injured, while 250 Israelis have been killed and 5,500 have been injured. And that's a ratio of between 20 to 1. So there's a massive imbalance there, and that's an imbalance that we really do hear about. And these events are going to continue for as long as there's toxic politicians and political leaders who gain political benefit from these types of actions. And the political community all around the world has to do a lot more than just lining up the sails of the Sydney Opera House and the colours of the Israeli flag, which actually cause even more problems here in Sydney. But solutions are not going to be found if they keep siding with the Israeli government and ignoring the plight of the Palestinians. And this is not to condone anyone's actions, but just to outline that there's a reason why these events are occurring in Israel. They'll never be resolved without a better understanding of all the issues and if the political aspirations of one group of people are totally ignored. It's a difficult and complex situation. I think that as a analyst, we should be allowed to criticise movements and governments without having to recourse to racist or anti-Muslim or anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish rhetoric. And I think that to criticise Hamas or to criticise the Israeli government is not to condemn them outside of how you would condemn the Australian government or the New Zealand government or the American government. And a lot of people quickly jump to your criticism of this side or that side instantly means that you are anti or you are racist or you are anti-religion or but moods run and tempers run so high that these often become default positions. And so as an analyst, it's very hard to find a non-biased approach to criticising the parties involved, not the people involved, not the people of Palestine, not the people of Israel. The Netanyahu government only scraped in again. Uh, so there's a lot of people in Israel who do not like it and who disagree with what is going on. Hamas is not Gaza. Gaza is a geographical place. Hamas is a political organization. Hamas is a fairly radical organization. There are other more moderate Palestinian voices who want their land back, who want a two-state solution and who want to do it non-violently. It's, of course, tempered by British evangelical thinking back in 1917 with people believing Armageddon was near and trying to hurry it up, which led to various 
states of confusion, really. And the establishment of Israel as a country was also underpinned by now really American evangelical thinking. And in the 60s and 70s and 80s, this really took off. You take out Western influence and things get maybe a little simpler. Whenever civilians are killed on either side, this needs to be condemned. It was not right for Hamas to bomb those people. It is not right for Israel to react against civilians or really the Netanyahu government. And it is interesting, as you pointed out, that it always seems to line up. Netanyahu is under investigation for corruption. They're trying to change the law in Israel that the government can override the courts in certain decisions, which is pretty extraordinary. And not in a fair checks and balances way, in a way that, oh, we find the prime minister guilty. Oh, well, okay, we've overturned that because we can. It's an awful, awful situation. My heart goes out to everyone who has been directly affected. And also at this time, the Australian media was taking sides, and that's one issue that has been consistent since October the 7th. And you could argue that it's always been like this when it comes to reporting on what's going on in Israel and Palestine. But Australian journalists use different words to describe events that are suffered by Israelis and Palestinians and are generally a lot more aggressive and less sympathetic with Palestinian representatives than they are with representatives from the Israeli community. Here's one exchange between the ABC Sarah Ferguson and Mustafa Bagusi, the Secretary General of the Palestinian National Initiative. No one is disputing that all lives are of equal value and we understand where you are coming from, but I would like your human response to the events that we have seen over the past few days that have been reported by media the world over. These are not Israeli-only reports. Let me give you the names of some children that have been taken hostage into Gaza. Five-year-old Raz Asher and his three-year-old sister, 12-year-old Irez and brother Sahar Calderon, 13-year-old Noya Dan. Does taking children hostage destroy any sympathy for the Palestinian cause? I totally do not accept and I refuse taking any child hostage. Do you want me to name to you the 140 children who were killed in Gaza by Israeli airstrikes? I'd just like do to... you want me to tell you, do you want me to tell you, let me answer. Do you want me to tell you that I was shot by a sniper while I was treating an injured person with two gunshots and I'm still carrying these gunshots in my back? I am not going to talk about this. I'm telling you, let's look at the causes of this. The main cause of what everything horrible that is happening to Palestinians and Israelis is the continuation of illegal Israeli occupation of Palestinian land. And here's another interaction between the ABC and Josh Lee from the Palestinian Action Group, which is yet another example of how the media frames the news against Palestinian interests. Have you made any efforts today to identify by whom? Uh, these are people who are chanting, you know, F the Jews and so on, just to be frank, for those not familiar with uh, just how offensive some of those statements were, just trying to give some context to that. Have you made any attempt to establish who they were, where they came from? I mean, 
I don't know who they were. Um, what we can do is make it very clear, as we have, that this has nothing to do with the movement for a free Palestine, you know. And as, as I made it clear, we have a very long history um, of standing with all different communities against uh, the state of Israel's policies. So that's what we stand for. We'll make it clear again at our next protests on Sunday that those views are not welcome. So we don't um, condone that at all. We condemn that in the strongest possible terms. Yep. Um, and as I said, we take a stand against all forms uh, of racism. That's what the fight for a free Palestine is about. I'll note that your previous guest referred to the Palestinians as animals uh, in the segment you just had. Uh, you yeah, didn't please, challenge him on that, no, interestingly. No, no, please, please respond. And, and I, the, I'll just explain, Josh, you know, sure. that was a, a startling statement, but I was aware that we were going to be speaking to you and others in the program, and I knew it, it, it would be challenged. This is the sort of heightened uh, language that I guess we're getting at the moment. Sure, so. well, well, then we should challenge it. Let's challenge it now. He referred to the Palestinians as animals. The Defence Minister of Israel has referred to the people, all of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, as animals, and they're undergoing a mass campaign of bombing uh, in, a, in a strip where 2.3 million people live. They've cut off food and water now supplies, including electricity, fuel, medical supplies. Uh, and the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has declared in his words he wants to turn the Gaza Strip into a desert island. And by the end of October, the conflict was getting worse. More Palestinian people were being killed by the Israeli Defence Forces, and most of these were women and children. The United Nations was also seeking a diplomatic solution, with the Israel government attacking the United Nations for interfering in their attempts for what seemed to be, for most reasonable people, to be acts of genocide. And it was also becoming a heightened issue within Australian politics as well, with the Liberal Party deciding that now was the best time to start playing political games. Here's what we had to say at the time. There's complexities, there's parallels we have to be careful drawing. But the ultimate point is that two wrongs don't make a right. And that civilians in Palestine who are cut off from electricity, from water, from food, and the people in Israel who are appalled at this, and there's a quite sizable group of people who are appalled at this and don't want it to happen. I hope they can work together to sort it out so that things can improve. It looks like that there are troops going over from the US, from Australia and from other countries. This is not good. I don't know that it will do much good. And any criticisms that I have is not about whether a particular citizenry is in the wrong. It's about the political organisations drawing this stuff. Oh, and I think that the Israel government is out of control and has been pretty much out of control since Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated in 1995. And the government and its behaviour behaves like a group of outlaws. And it's now saying that it's going to teach the UN a lesson. And the last time I heard anyone talking like that was Vladimir Putin. And who in the Western world talks like that? Who in the Western world would speak like that? You know, teach the UN a lesson. And that was in response to a speech made by the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. The situation in the Middle East is growing more dire by the hour. The war in Gaza is raging and risks spiralling throughout the region. I'm deeply concerned about the clear violations of international humanitarian law that we are witnessing in Gaza. Let me be clear, no party to an armed conflict is above international humanitarian law. 
It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence, their economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. But the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas, and those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. To ease epic suffering, make the deliver of aid easier and safer, and facilitate the release of hostages, I reiterate my appeal for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. That was quite a measured speech where he's criticising the Israeli army as well as Hamas and said that nothing can justify the deliberate killing, injuring and kidnapping of innocent civilians. And there shouldn't be anything controversial in all of this, but the Israel military wants to keep bombing and killing innocent Palestinians, over 5,000 so far. And when it's finished there, it wants to teach the UN a lesson. And before people get out their keyboards, just to be clear, just to reiterate what you said before, David, we are critical of the Israel government and the Israel military and all of those hardliners that are governed by the Bible. And there's a lot of Jewish people in Israel and all around the world who are horrified by the actions of the Israel government. And in the same way that Hamas does not represent all Palestinian people, the Israel government does not represent all Israeli people. But the actions of the Israel military and the government do have to stop because it's jeopardising the security of the entire Middle East region, not just of Israel. It's a highly complex situation. All we can do is hope that things settle down, that the Israeli government starts to see the opprobrium it's getting from the world. And even people like Joe Biden have been critical, although he walked some of those statements back. So it, it's it's probably going to get worse before it gets better, but we hope that it, that everyone comes out with as few innocent victims as possible. And there's also a local dimension to all of this as well. And, and the war might be centred around Gaza, but that doesn't mean that the politics of this won't be played out in Australia. Peter Dutton suggested that the Prime Minister should travel to Israel while he's on his way to meet with President Biden in the United States. And this, of course, became big news in the media because apparently in Australia, an opposition leader of the Liberal Party is a far more important figure than the Prime Minister of the government. And we need to hear every single word that he says. And it was never explained what the Prime Minister was going to do in Israel, but he just had to go, according to Peter Dutton. And if he's so keen about this, well, maybe he should go. He's the policeman, so maybe he should go to Israel and resolve the conflict. And then he started complaining about Airbus elbow. So you can just never win with Peter Dutton. And the government minister, Ed Husich, he spoke out on behalf of Palestine and Palestinian people. And here's what he had to say. Palestinians are being collectively punished here for Hamas's barbarism. I really do feel that uh, the uh, there is an obligation on governments, particularly the Israeli government, to, as we have said, follow the rules of international law. Governments are different to terrorist organisations. Governments, there is a higher expectation that there will be a protection of innocent lives. And Senator Fatima Payman from WA, she also made a speech in the Senate supporting Palestine as well. The killing of innocent civilians in Israel should be condemned, and we condemn it. 
The killing of innocent civilians in Palestine should also be condemned, and we must condemn it. The international community loudly and proudly condemned Russia's occupation of Ukraine when it started attacking Ukraine in 2014. Yet today, the world watches as the state of Israel deprives the entire population, men, women and children, of the basic necessities of life, food, water, electricity, gas and medicines. We must condemn it. Israeli missiles strike residential dwellings, civilians, multi-storey apartments, health facilities, as well as places of worship, indiscriminately killing men, women and children. We must condemn it. Human Rights Watch confirms that Israel is using white phosphorus in Gaza, violates the international humanitarian law pro prohibition. We must condemn it. The price tag of Israel's right to defend itself cannot be the destruction of Palestine. Israel's right to defend its civilians cannot equate to the annihilation of Palestinian, Palestinian civilians. I hereby call for an immediate ceasefire to come into effect alongside many world leaders and experts. Food, water, medicine and humanitarian aid needs to be allowed to get through and reach the victims. Mediation and talks need to start, as obviously violence has not solved anything for the past 75 years, and just and a just and long-lasting solution needs to be sought out. And then Susan Lay came out and she claimed that it showed that the Labor Party was divided over Israel. And then these supposed divisions were then amplified by the media, of course. And Israel-Palestine, as you refer to, David, it's a very, very complex issue. And I guess it would be made a lot easier if Israel stopped settling in the West Bank and stopped treating Gaza like an open-air prison. But it can never be debated on a serious level to anyone's satisfaction if all we get are these dilettante and politicised perspectives from the Liberal Party that just make matters worse. And in November, the United Nations called for a ceasefire and a humanitarian truce in Gaza. 120 nations voted in favour, 14 voted against, including the United States, and it's hard to imagine any country voting against a ceasefire to provide humanitarian aid, but that's exactly what the United States and Israel did. In the end, Australia couldn't even be bothered voting. It decided to abstain, so it couldn't decide whether or not to support a ceasefire or to provide humanitarian aid. And that does take a special level of diplomatic cowardice. This is what David Lewis had to say about it at the time. It was a very disappointing move from Australia to basically turn a blind eye in the, the nicest interpretation or in the most positive interpretation, turning a blind eye to genocide. And it is a genocide that's happening. That's clear. The Israeli government, and I want to make it very clear that it is the corrupt Netanyahu government that is behind all this. Calling for a ceasefire I don't think would have changed anything substantially in Australia, it would have showed our citizens that we care about the people who live here and that we actually do care that children and refugees are looked after after years and years of that not really being the case. So I found it 
very disappointing that they wimped out and abstained. Abstention looked weak. It looked indecisive. It didn't look great. How are we to now go and deal with other countries who desperately want a ceasefire? How are we to deal with countries like Lebanon, who Australia has a very close connection to, mainly through immigration to here, but nonetheless, I thought it a short-sighted, mean-spirited mistake from a, a foreign affairs department that should be one of the best in the world and from someone who we really had come to expect a lot more from including the Prime Minister and the Minister for Foreign Affairs. And six former Prime Ministers have signed a letter condemning Hamas and in support of Israel as well, and that's John Howard, Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison. And there's quite a few different versions about how this letter came about. There were some suggestions that it was pressure from the Zionist Federation of Australia or it actually came from Josh Frydenberg or it actually came from Malcolm Turnbull. And for me, it does look like it was written from a pro-Israel position, so we can assume that it was probably written up by the Zionist Federation of Australia. And it outlined that Israel promises to do all it can to avoid civilian casualties. And I really don't think that's the case. There's over 10,000 civilians that have died so far, so I'd really like to see what would happen if they didn't actually make that promise. Paul Keating is the only former Prime Minister who refused to sign that letter, saying that it was too sharp and it was too biased and it needed to be more balanced. And I actually agree, I think that was the case, but it seemed to be part of the Israel government's propaganda process. And since that time, there have been more bombings, more civilians killed in Gaza, and the responses in the Australian media still seem to be biased towards the interests of Israel or the interests of the Israeli government. And if we ever hear from a Palestinian representative, they're always asked if they condemn the actions of Hamas. But there's no such request from Israeli representatives to condemn the actions of the Israeli military or if they support the process of ethnic cleansing in Gaza. And there are also more diplomatic issues starting to arise from all around the world. Egypt has condemned the recent bombings and attacks. South American countries are cutting off their relationships with Israel. But overall, it seems to be quite one-sided and it doesn't seem like there's any room for nuance or reasonable discussion. The Foreign Minister, Senator Penny Wong, she urged Israel to listen to what its friends in the international community are saying and she was slammed for even suggesting this. And She's also warned that the international community won't accept ongoing civilian deaths in Gaza. She was slammed for that. The government minister, Tony Burke, was asked whether he supported the decision of the Canterbury-Bankstown Council to fly the Palestinian flag, and here's what he had to say about that. You need to understand, in my part of Sydney, people are watching every day death, they're watching every day images, sometimes of people they know, often of children. I had a professional woman say to me the other day, she has never seen so many images of dead babies in her life. Often the images they're seeing turn out to be of people they know. Everybody, in if I go through the suburbs across from, from Belmore, Lakemba, where I live in Punchbowl through to Bankstown, pretty much everybody knows somebody who has lost someone. And until the council made that decision, there was nowhere in Australia where those colours were being acknowledged as worthy of grieving. 
So when the councillor Coda Saleh, who's my local council councillor, brought forward that resolution, and then the mayor BLL Hayek uh, supported that resolution, which I might add was supported unanimously. They were truly representing the grief that is in the community. And once again, it is not the Hamas flag that's flying. It's a Palestinian flag. And it's a flag that gives people the chance to know that there is recognition and not selective grief. We can't say we only grieve for certain people who are slaughtered. We can't have a situation as a nation where we only formally acknowledge particular deaths. What happened on October the 7th was horrific and was rightly condemned by the parliament and condemned by me, the condemnation of Hamas. We can't have the condem- that condemnation be added to by saying, as a result of condemnation, that's somehow weakened if you grieve for anybody else. That's somehow weakened if we do something to acknowledge the Palestinian loss of life. And that was a very well-considered, well-reasoned and well-articulated perspective. And that's a large group of people within the electorate that he represents in the seat of Watson. And they were slammed as well. And from the usual suspects, Sky News, News Corporation, the Liberal Party and the Israeli lobby as well. But it just seems that there's no room for nuance or reasonable discussion about Palestine and Israel. And I think that that's one of the many problems. There are solutions for every problem in the world, but it's a matter of defining exactly what the problem is and then applying a solution to it. But in this case, it seems like we can't even get to that first point of discussing the issue. Firstly, I think we should praise Tony Burke for representing his community. Watson is one of the largest populations of Islamic community in the country. There's four or five mosques in the seat. There's a lot of cultural organizations and places like Lakemba and Belmore have very prominent Islamic shops and that type of thing. So Tony Burke was doing exactly what his constituents would have wanted him to do. And there may be other members of parliament who may need to support their communities in other ways. I think people who criticise a member of parliament for representing their constituency, they need to have a bit of a think about what this actually means. I think we should praise local members for representing their local communities. Tony Burke represents one of the biggest Muslim communities in Sydney, and I think it would have been wrong for him to not acknowledge that. Whether the council should be entering into international politics is a whole other issue for a whole other time. But nonetheless, I think it's not bad for the council to be showing empathy to its ratepayers and residents. I think it's completely appropriate for Tony Burke to be supporting his constituents in such a strong and positive way. And if it was someone else supporting something I was less inclined to agree with, if they were supporting their local community, we would have to allow that as well. Now, with the Prime Ministers, I think that was a little bit ill-advised. I think Paul Keating was probably right. He gave a few reasons as to why. He said that the letter was a bit biased. It was a bit harsh. He also mentioned that he wasn't particularly a fan of Scott Morrison, John Howard or Tony Abbott. But nonetheless, he decided to abstain from that. I think, again, he's probably going to be seen to be right. As world outrage grows against what's happening in Gaza in particular, the other prime ministers 
may have overstepped their mark. I don't think that ex-Prime Ministers should enter into public debates unasked. And I think this is a case where some of them, if not all of them, are going to regret having such a strongly worded letter. And it goes back to there are some very powerful lobby groups on the Israeli side who perhaps wield a bit too much influence from time to time. And as with any major international conflict of this nature, the more the public sees what's going on, the more outraged they become and the more they want their government to do something about it. And there's a lot that the Australian government can do. They can put pressure on the Israel government. They can cease the arms trade with Israel. They can leverage allies and friends in the international community. They can support resolutions that call for ceasefires or offer humanitarian aid. The public isn't seeing any of this, and the Australian public wants something to be done. And it's not like they're concerned about who's right or wrong. They can see that there's a lot of people that are being killed in Gaza. It's a very one-sided war, and they want it to end. And it's not just happening here. It's in many countries around the world, protesting every week in major capital cities and lobbying their respective governments. In mid-November, there was a bit of a change with the Australian Greens putting more pressure on the federal government to do something. Here's our discussion from that time. I think the tide is turning. I'm starting to notice more news stories that are less favourable to the Israeli position as it stands at the moment. I'm starting to see more mainstream media look at the everyday Palestinian. Things are starting to turn. The Australian Greens, of course, walked out of the Senate this week. That was a surprisingly effective way of winning the argument. It shows that the Greens do care about human lives. It shows that the Greens do have principles, at least to their supporters. And it might be the shot in the arm that the Greens needed after a disastrous few months of a mixture of bad luck, poor management and inexperience. And yeah, the LNP is pro-Israel and don't really want to annoy the Israeli government. ALP is torn. There are some very anti-Israel members who want to see the Israeli state dismantled. There are some pro-Israeli members who have worked very closely with the Israeli state, even if they don't like the Netanyahu government. So Labor's in a difficult position as it often finds itself. Oh, no, as you mentioned, David, the Australian Greens did lead a walk out from the chambers. And here's Senator Maureen Farouki speaking during the week. The coalition is morally bankrupt when it comes to Palestine, and Labour has shown itself to be heartless, gutless cowards. You are watching the massacre of thousands of Palestinians by Israel, and you are not condemning Israel. You refuse to call for an immediate ceasefire. Well, we are not going to sit here and watch you pat yourselves on the back for doing nothing. Weasel words are not going to stop war crimes. Today, we bring the people's protest into parliament. Free, free Palestine. Uh, thank you, Senator Fariki. 
And last week we did ask the question about who speaks for the Palestinians. And as you mentioned, the Liberal Party definitely doesn't. Uh, the Labor Party generally does not. And, you know, it still talks about Israel does have the right to defend itself, but it's been saying it more through gritted teeth in recent days. So it seems that international action is on the agenda and there is a change in the mindset of the international community and I think it has reached a point where the international community does have to act. The Israel military cannot continue with its unbridled attacks on civilians without suffering any consequences from the international community. A group of seven meetings being convened in Japan to discuss the war in Gaza. The British government is holding an emergency committee meeting as well and Russia is calling for an intervention as well, so there's a nice bit of irony going on there. But it has reached a point where people all around the world are getting disgusted with the actions of the Israel military and the Israel government, and that includes many Israeli people within Israel. And there have been suggestions in the media that Hamas is playing a brilliant PR campaign with all the death and destruction. And I find these suggestions quite offensive, actually. 10,000 civilians killed, well, that's not public relations and PR, that's 10,000 civilians killed, that's 4,000 children killed, and that's all the houses, the shops, the schools, the universities that have been destroyed, that's not PR, that's what's actually happened, and the more the people see this, I don't think it's so much that they're disgusted, they're actually quite disturbed by what's going on in Gaza. The world has changed and it's a complex issue and if there was a simple solution that people were prepared to go through it would have happened by now certainly i think part of the solution is to stop bombing civilian targets to not attack civilians to let people's families remain intact and that's really on both sides but again if it was that simple it probably would have happened by now Ghana troops search for arabs after capturing the city Arab strong points are taken after being blasted to rubble. During the mopping up operation, Haganah forces seek out every Arab, and barricades are set up to screen those who had not already fled the city. Everyone is searched. With the relinquishing of the British mandate, Palestine is rocked by full-scale war, and both sides mobilize. Arab captives are held for evacuation to Acre. Women flee with what belongings they can carry. And as Palestine struggles for national existence, Throughout November, the bombing and killing in Gaza was starting to be compared with al-Nakba from 1948, and there was more public and political pressure being placed on the federal government to do something, not just act as an innocent bystander, and the Australian government is limited in what they can do on the ground in Gaza, but it gets back to what we mentioned before. Governments can do so many things diplomatically behind the scenes to put pressure on foreign governments, and it would be in Australia's national interest to do this, and the political games played by the leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, they continued. And it was almost like there was no issue that was out of bounds for the Liberal Party to score political points and seek advantage from this issue. And our discussion at the time, it looked at this issue. And we also discussed the arms trade between Australia and Israel and the special visit to Australia by Dr. Francesca Albanese. 
And the war in Gaza continues and is going from bad to worse. The Israel military is continuing with its bombing of Gaza. More and more civilians are being killed in Gaza and more Palestinians are being forced away from their homes. And as we suggested last week, there is more international pressure being placed on the Israel government to cease fire and stop their process of killing civilians, stop the process of ethnic cleansing and work towards a resolution. But this is never going to happen by itself and there needs to be an international framework or international intervention and support to stop this action by the Israeli military. And this is now being considered as the second Nakba, and that's a repeat of the catastrophe that occurred in 1948 when 700,000 Palestinians were violently expelled from Palestine. And there is a school of thought that it's been a continuous Nakba over the past 75 years, and it's a process of ethnic cleansing that has never really ended. And the more people know about what's happening in Gaza and the history of the region, the more outraged they are about the behaviour of the Netanyahu government and the Israeli military. But closer to home, there doesn't seem to be a change in the position of the Australian government and they're still not supporting a ceasefire in Gaza and they're still arguing the point that Israel does have a right to defend itself and they certainly don't have a right to kill civilians on this scale and destroy Gaza. But in Parliament, there was this confrontation between the leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, and the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. I never thought that I would see in my lifetime a repeat of the horrific scenes that we saw and that we've read about during the course of uh, the Second World War repeated in our lifetimes, but to see people of Jewish faith cowering in their homes being dragged from cupboards out into the street, when children are still abducted and still held hostage, this Prime Minister needs to stand up and to be united with the Jewish community. And he's not. The words have been qualified, the message divided, and the Australian public has looked to the Prime Minister and not identified this man compared to the man that they voted for in May of 22, less than 18 months ago. Well, when people look for a definition of overreach, they will search for this motion. That's moved by the Leader of the Opposition. There is no issue too Order. big for Members him to show left. how Member small he is. Will cease and the weaponisation or attempt to weaponise anti-Semitism in this chamber and make it a partisan issue is frankly beyond contempt. Frankly beyond contempt. I spoke in this chamber on Monday about the events in Caulfield and about the events in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. There was no qualification, no qualification whatsoever in my condemnation. But I also have a track record of standing up Order. for the rights and for justice of Palestinian people. Yeah. And I make no apologies for being a consistent supporter of a two-state solution. Yeah. And I make no apologies for trying to bring communities together, yeah. not divide them, because that's the role of political leaders. And at a time, at a time when there is, there is social division, leaders have a choice. They have a choice to either bring people together or divide them. To either look for unity or look for opportunism. Order. And what we have seen Order. from this the bloke here is consistent with Groom. his entire political career Barker. has been based upon division. And 
I think this is a problem in Australian politics. On this issue, whatever your perspective is, there is no room for social division. And this is exactly what Peter Dutton is trying to do. Exploit division, ramp up the fear and loathing, create friction, lie about it and hope to reap some kind of political benefit out of it. It's a strange approach. The deaths of innocent people, the propaganda flying around. I saw on one of the social media sites the other day, someone claimed that they'd found a list of Hamas operatives in the basement of a hospital and it turned out it was a calendar. And even if you didn't read Arabic, it was clearly a calendar. All types of claims, some of which may be true, some of which can't be true, some of which it's too hard to judge. And that's part of the nature of war. But the number of non-combatants being killed, and that starts from October 7th with the Hamas bombing. The other thing too is that both sides don't really have popular support. Hamas was in government in Palestine, but it was on a very large and wavering coalition. So that they, Hamas doesn't have popular support. Netanyahu, Likud, doesn't have mass popular support. It's something that from the outside, you have to be very careful. I think the only sensible solution is to demand a ceasefire and that there were those countries which included Australia and Canada and a few others who abstained I still think is extremely problematic and I know that it's to do with international relations and and Australia has made some noises to at least ameliorate the abstention without denying it. And I note Penny Wong was criticised by the Australian Jewish Association for going in a worrying direction. And I know that the Australian Jewish Association is not really seen as representative of the whole Jewish community in Australia and is a rather divisive organisation. Peter Dutton doesn't have the subtlety of thought or the intelligence to be able to deal with this manner in a way that will be in term advantageous to him. The fact that he's thinking in this type of way is probably enough to show us that he's not up to the task of commenting on this. And I think it's not going to end well for him. And there was another Albanese in town during the week, and this one was Dr. Francesca Albanese, and she's the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Territories of Gaza and West Bank, and she spoke at the National Press Club this week, and I promised that I wouldn't criticise or speak poorly of the media this week or any other journalist, but I think Dr. Albanese's words do speak for themselves. Here's one exchange at the National Press Club. There is a risk of genocide being committed by Israel and also the capacity to do that. When you say they have, I mean, if they wanted to, it would probably be done to be blunt about it. Yes, it's a dire situation for civilians, but Israel did say, civilians, please leave, this is where we're targeting. So that wasn't them actually targeting civilians at that point. As my friend Daniel Levy told the BBC journalist, and I beg your pardon, I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but can you really keep a straight face as you ask me this question? And here's another exchange. I couldn't help but being tripped up by the very ending of your speech where you said that ending Jewish-Israeli domination would be rehumanising acts for them as well. I just want to ask whether that sort of comment is helpful in the current climate, talking about ending Jewish-Israeli domination where domination has a, a wider connotation outside that context. What do you mean? Uh, talking about Israeli-Jewish domination. Meaning, are you asking me uh, in Israel? Well, I, would, I, I, I just, the phrase jumped out at me at the end of your speech, and I'm just wondering if the, the trope of domination... Uh, no, something... it's not a trope. It's really real. So it yeah. seems not to understand what I'm saying. There is an apartheid regime. 
No, I'm serious. There is an apartheid regime. It's domination. This is not a trope. This is international law. I encourage you to read the apartheid convention because it talks about racial domination. And this is what I'm talking about. It might be a trope into your, sorry, into the way you interpret it. But I'm using domination in a strictly legal sense. And here's yet another. Um, you've said previously uh, that it should ultimately up, be up to Palestinians to decide who governs in Gaza um, and that Israel should be open to making a peace deal with Hamas. Um, given that uh, Hamas leaders since October 7 have said repeatedly that they would like to repeat these attacks, uh, is that really possible? Is Hamas really a potential a partner for peace or would the defeat or surrender of Hamas be part of any realistic peace agreement in Gaza? I'm sorry, I cannot answer the question because you are basi basing yourself on something that has been reported, that it has been completely distorted. Sorry, I mean, you have some media who's really as manipulative as those in Italy. And I thought that the... <laughs> no. No, I've said, I've said something, something else, that the military response cannot be war, must be peace. And the peace must be done with the Palestinians, but... I mean, I'm also speaking of uh, a non-legal peace, a peace, a, a reconciliation with the idea that Palestinians have same humanity and same entitled to rights, freedom and, and dignity than the Israelis. So it was a very beautiful 35-minute conversation, and this is what the journalists got. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is not what I said. It has been completely distorted. And... She totally owned that room of journalists, and as I said, her comments really do speak for themselves, and there were a few strange moments through social media where a lot of people thought that Francesca Albanese and Anthony Albanese were actually a wife-husband team, and a little bit like Malcolm and Lucy Turnbull, and might have been a case where Anthony Albanese hoped that he was Francesca Albanese just for that one day at the National Press Club, but... Dr. Albanese doesn't have any political responsibility. She can be a lot more forthright about what she says and remembering that as a member of the United Nations, she's speaking on behalf of the whole world. And the world is much bigger than the interests of Israel. It's much bigger than the interests of all the white countries in the world. So that's her audience. And Anthony Albanese does have to be a little bit more circumspect. But there's also that link between the respective military industries in Australia and Israel. And Australia does supply military hardware to Israel. So there's a strong possibility that Australian-made hardware has been used to kill Palestinian civilians in Gaza. And there's been 52 military export licenses to Israel this year. And we're not sure what the value of this is because the Department of Defense won't release that information. And the value of all exports to Israel is $345 million per year. And we can't tell if this $345 million includes any military hardware exports or whether it's over and above this figure, but it probably gives an insight into why Anthony Albanese keeps saying that Israel does have a right to defend itself because there's a vested interest here. Australia does seem to be part of that process and the military trade isn't cheap. So the Australian government could be actually making quite a bit of money out of this arrangement. 
It's just distressing. And again, international politics is a complex field. The Israel-Gaza situation is extremely complex and is tied up with local politics there, and as well as longer philosophical discussions that have been had since at least 1972. And you can go back to 48, and you can probably go back to Masada in 2060 or whenever it was transparency has got to be the issue. You know, this is what we're doing. This is how much we're saying. This is why we're sending it. We locked into contracts 10 years ago. We we can't really get out of them if that's the case. Or we decided that we're supporting Israeli expansion for these reasons. And we understand that this is against quite a lot of people in our party. Just this week, the Labor branch of Graindler passed a motion for a ceasefire in Gaza, which goes against the Prime Minister's official policy. Someone pointed out that uh, not that long ago, Anthony Albanese would have moved the motion. And now, of course, he is the recipient against it. And this is one of the natures of politics too. Your mind can change or your mind can be changed for you. That's not to defend. I'm just noticing that this is something that happens to a lot of politicians. What they say outside of government is often not only different, but contradictory to what they say inside of government. And that's something that we have to change about the system. And there is that old saying that truth is always the first casualty in war and we don't live in a perfect world so we can never find out what the truth is in anything really. But when you have a mainstream media that is so severely compromised, finding that truth in a conflict is going to be incredibly difficult. And as with most things, the more informed we are about any situation, the better we can understand what's really going on. And we found out that so many journalists in the mainstream media have been on travel junkets and other largesse provided by the Israel government on supposed education tours. And no one in their right mind would believe that these junkets haven't influenced the reporting of Gaza in the Australian media. And we also found out more about how the Israel lobby works in Australia with threats against journalists reporting on the facts and in one case at the ABC leading to the sacking of at least one journalist for posting information about Gaza which was simply providing information produced by Human Rights Watch and that case is currently being heard by the Fair Work Commission in Sydney and that was through the work of Lawyers for Israel who made contact with Aisha Buttrose and the ABC Managing Director, David Anderson, and the journalist in question, Antoinette Latouf, she was sacked within a couple of hours. And here's Antoinette Latouf commenting on her case outside the Fair Work Commission just a few days ago. The matter didn't resolve today, um, but the fight continues and I'm willing and prepared to fight for as long as it takes. And I want to take a moment to thank the millions of people around the country, so much support around the country, but also overseas. And this is such an important case because it's not just about me. It's about free speech. It's about racism. It's about the important role journalists play in truth-telling. And crucially, it's also about a fair, independent and robust ABC. And I love the ABC. I will always advocate and fight for an ABC that can operate and inform the masses, inform and entertain the masses without fear or favour. And it's just more evidence about how Israel lobby groups operate in Australia. And there isn't a uniformity of opinion within the Australian Jewish community, as we found out in the commentary provided by Louise Adler at the time. And here's the discussion that we had about all of this in mid-December. 
It's been a big week in politics and it started off with the revelation that there's been over 70 journalists and editors in the mainstream media who have had trips to Israel paid for by the Israel government and most of these are from News Corporation and Nine Media and there's a few from the ABC and The Guardian as well. So it's absolutely no surprise that Nine Media has banned journalists who have signed an open letter offering their support to the Palestinian people and The ABC has also sent a warning to their staff about this open letter as well, and this comes after the ABC sent out an edict banning the use of genocide and apartheid in their reporting about Gaza and Israel. And this is all in response to an open letter generated by the journalist union, the MEAA, and it's essentially to show solidarity with the journalists who are covering the war in Gaza. And over 55 journalists have been killed so far in Gaza, and quite a few of those have actually been targeted by the Israeli Defence Force. And they're expressing their outrage over the killing of over 15,000 Palestinians and wanting the mainstream media to hold to the principles of journalism, which are, of course, holding power to account, adhering to truth rather than the syndrome of both sidism, being able to report freely and accurately, being able to report on war crimes, genocide, ethnic cleansing and apartheid, and reporting on the growing anti-war sentiment in Australia. And since this conflict restarted on October the 7th, and I made this point that the war in Gaza didn't commence on October the 7th, it's actually been going on since 1946, but there's been a clear pro-Israel bias within the media reporting in Australia. And democracies do have to be set up or based on free and fair reporting by journalists. And if you're setting up the rules for what can and cannot be reported, or if you're banning journalists for signing letters condemning war crimes, well, it's not a sign of a free and open media environment. We need to be perfectly clear. Criticising a government does not imply that we are anti-Jewish or anti-Islam or even anti-the state of Israel. Those are completely different issues. And I think it's terrible the way that the current Israeli government is trying to use things like anti-Semitism as a way of shutting down debate and criticism of them. I condemn anti-Semitism. I condemn anti-Arab. I condemn anti-Muslim. I condemn Islamophobia. Bad people come in all backgrounds. People who we disagree with come with in all backgrounds. There's been a fair bit that the Hamas party has done that has been rightly criticised. The Hamas party is not all of the Palestinian people. There's been a lot that the Israeli government has done. Israeli government is not all of Israeli people, and it's not all of the Jewish people in the world. That the Israeli government pays journalists to go over on basically enhanced holidays is not unusual. A lot of governments do that for a whole range of reasons. Russia did it all the time during the Cold War. Bring over some soft journalists, show them the good parts of Russia, keep them away from the bad parts of Russia, send them home. And then you'd get an article, oh, people are happy in Moscow. I went and visited this place. And by Russia, I mean the USSR. Didn't make it right then, doesn't make it right now. Of course, trade conferences and expos and and all of those types of things are another way of getting soft press. And look, that's fine. You have the right to spend your money on how you wish. I'm sure Australia brings over people from other nations to try and, you know, look, 
look at the great trade we can give you. In itself, it's not a bad thing. But when you're a political journalist or a business journalist, you should be above this type of stuff. I have noticed on some of the social media, a journalist got up and said, yes, look, I, I went to Israel at their extent, but I've been extremely critical. And sure, good on you. That's great. So you should, all of that. But as was pointed out, it's not just what you do, it's how it's perceived. There's a very loud Zionist lobby in Australia. It's not large, but it's very loud. And that taints everything. So when they talk about anti-Semitism, you have to think how much of this is, are they making up? And how much is genuine? If it's genuine, yes, must be stamped out. There's that kerfuffle in the Sydney Theatre Company where a couple of the cast came out in the caveats. There was then a rather loud letter-writing campaign from Jewish people saying, hold on, we're part of this too. Now, fair point, but I wonder how much of it was genuine. People worried that they're going to cop some blowback that they don't deserve and how much of it was from the loud Zionist lobby that has a lot of influence here. Well, for me, it's also that issue of double standards and having different treatment for different situations because Australian journalists also signed an open letter to support journalists in war zones and a commitment to fair and honest reporting in Ukraine almost two years ago. And they also denounced the actions of Russia and President Vladimir Putin. But the ABC and Nine Media, they didn't make a fuss about that at the time or ban journalists from reporting on Russia and Ukraine or censor them about the use of words genocide or war crimes. But since Russia invaded Ukraine and commenced the war almost two years ago, the ABC and Nine Media have published many articles accusing Russia of war crimes and using the word genocide to describe what was happening in Ukraine, as did the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And in Ukraine, there have been many massacres that have been rightly identified as potential war crimes. And of course, it should never be a case where we say that different acts of war should be more deserving than others. But if there's war crimes being committed by Russia in Ukraine, then it's right to claim that Israel is also committing war crimes in Gaza. And if it's okay to accuse Russia of attempted genocide and of ethnic cleansing, well, it should be okay to accuse Israel of doing the same in Gaza because, to me, what Israel is doing in Gaza does look remarkably similar to attempted genocide. It does look like ethnic cleansing and it does look like war crimes are being committed. And being an editor in Sydney in a failing media outlet and telling your journalists not to report on the truth, as far as I'm concerned, that's a failure of journalism. And I think the public generally is beginning to see right through this type of behaviour. I think the public is, and I think social media is a big part of it, where you can see things happening, where you get a much wider range of opinion. Now, that in itself can be problematic, but I think it's better to have the wider range of opinion and then teach people how to think properly critically, you know, how to ignore confirmation bias, et cetera, et cetera, how to weigh sources, how to look at who is talking to you. And even just because you disagree broadly with someone doesn't mean they're wrong on that instance. And just because you agree with someone doesn't mean they're always right. I think the Israeli government has overplayed its hand and it's lost, well, all the Middle East, which it never expected to get. But Europe, it may have the Australian government. I live in, a, in an area with a large Middle Eastern population or people of Middle Eastern origin population. So I see a lot of Palestinian flags. I think, though, that particularly with younger people, the propaganda that worked since at least 1948, 
definitely since 1967, isn't cutting through in the way it used to, particularly with younger people. So we may be seeing a change in how these things are done. And of course, when it gets down to it, it's Netanyahu trying to avoid being arrested for corruption. These types of things are the desperate measures of a cornered rat. And Hamas, too, are in a minority government and are not particularly beloved by the Palestinian people. So we're really seeing the loss of innocent lives and on both sides. However, disproportionately, there's there's still been Israeli innocent people killed over small domestic politics and the world on the brink of, of a war because Bibi Netanyahu is a crook and because the leaders of Hamas are essentially crooks. And this is the great tragedy. And of course, this is still a big issue in Australia. And we've mentioned before that there is a sizable Jewish community that is opposed to the war in Gaza and what Israel is doing right now and has been doing in the past. But it's just taken a while for their voices to be heard. And here's the publisher, Louise Adler, discussing this issue and the behaviour of the Zionist lobby group in Australia. It comes from my own long history in the arts and cultural space and my um, engagement with the Israel lobby. It goes all the way back to the early 2000s when the Israeli ambassador decided um, or demanded a meeting with me, a private meeting with me, after I'd written a review of Edward Said's memoirs. And he demanded that I not air Israel's dirty linen in public. That was one of my early experiences of being told that um, we don't talk about Israel and our criticism of Israel in the public sphere. Fast forward a few a decade, perhaps, and when I publish a book by Anthony Lowenstein about the Israel lobby, uh, federal MPs feel it's incumbent upon them to write to the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne and demand, demand that I be sacked. And then let's fast forward to Adelaide Writers' Week when um, we decide that it is important to feature Palestinian literary culture as part of our program. And the Israel lobby decided that was reprehensible, that the view, they did not like the views of individual Palestinians. They didn't approve of them. And let's take them seriously. They have every right not to approve of those, um, those Palestinian writers and their views on the current state of, um, you know, state in the Middle East. And they're perfectly entitled to those views, but they were not entitled, in my view, to say that those, those Palestinian writers should not, therefore, be included in a, a literary festival celebrating a very rich literary and literary culture that was Palestinian. Palestinian literary culture. There was a barrage of letters to the Adelaide Festival Board. There were letters and um, op-eds and uh, news articles in all the media, but particularly in News Limited, that went on and on for days. There was um, demands on sponsors that they withdraw their funding from Adelaide Festival. And there were there was pressure put on the Premier of, New South, of, of South Australia, even. It went that far. And thankfully, the board was resolute, the Adelaide Festival was resolute, that this was an opportunity for people to hear Palestinians talk about their writing. It is important and it is vital for us not to look away, that we all have a choice, that the world looked away during the Second World War and Jews, six million of our people, were murdered in that looking away and that it is incumbent upon humanity to look at what is happening in Gaza now and to say, we will not accept this. We will say no, not in our name. 
So I think it is important to understand that there are many Jewish people who are not supportive of the Israel government, as you mentioned before, David, or of Benjamin Netanyahu, and are happy to expose the behaviour of the Zionist lobby in Australia and overseas. And just like any other group of people, there's always going to be a wide range of different opinions. And it's just that on Israel, we haven't had too many or we haven't heard too many of those other voices. And there was also an incident in the inner west of Sydney where Anthony Albanese was launching a new park in Ashfield and a woman with her six-month-old baby was holding up a sign with a watermelon logo on it with the words shame elbow on it as well. And in case you're wondering, the watermelon has been used in those many cases where the Palestinian flag has been banned or restricted and the green, red and the black seeds of the watermelon are the same colours as the Palestinian flag and, you know, you can hardly ban a watermelon. So this was a peaceful protest and a sign of resistance, but she was mishandled while she was holding her baby and the watermelon sign and she was removed by police. So I'm pretty sure that young Albanese would have been flying the Palestinian flag probably sharing slices of watermelon at the socialist resistance meetings. But 40 years on, when it really matters, he can't even bear to look at a woman holding up a sign of a Palestinian resistance and gets her removed by police. And it just seems to me that Albanese has forgotten where he came from and who he is. And just because you become the prime minister, it doesn't mean that you lose your sense of decency. Times change. People soften over time. People harden over time. They tend to get a little bit more conservative. And the person who Anthony Albanese was at 25 is necessarily different to the person that he is at 60. But it's still disappointing to see that he hasn't been able to show the humanity that I'm sure he's struggling with showing because the Australian government has determined various alliances, etc. Protest should be allowed. I've said this before. Disruptive, sure. Uncomfortable, sure. Violent, no. Destructive, no. But to manhandle her away without explanation, it was clearly an act of retaliation for holding up a sign. A young radical Anthony Albanese would have been the first one to her defence. I think. The older Anthony Albanese may not have been the first one to her defence, but he would have at least seen, yes, she's protesting and I used to do this and she's not actually harming anyone and her voice is just as important as every other voice. So that's a roundup of how we looked at the Israel-Palestine conflict last year. Once again, the international community and the United Nations hasn't been able to stop this war, and this is one of the most one-sided wars in modern history. But when the United States decides that no one can touch Israel, that's pretty much the end of the story. Most of the world acted when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2021. In Gaza, 2023, most of the world has decided to look the other way. And in my opinion, genocide is being committed in Gaza. Let's see what the International Court of Justice has got to say about this and see if they agree. But whatever the case is, this conflict will continue until the United States decides that enough is enough, or if by some miracle, Israel also decides that enough is enough. And in the meantime, the weekly protests will continue all around the world. Let's hope for peace and a solution for Palestinian people, because as Nelson Mandela said, our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. 
This is New Politics, one of the top 10 audio programs on Australian politics. Thanks for listening in to this special review of the War on Palestine. We'll see you again next time.